0: Today, we're talking with Dr. Keelan Morrison uh, from Scottsdale, Arizona, on developing a cash pay business model and starting a business during COVID. And you picked one of the the best economical years and one of the most impressive years to do that. You started your practice, I believe, this like it was around December 2019. hmm yeah. yeah. So how was your first year?
1: Um, it was very interesting. It was actually a really good year. Um, I had my first patient ever in my new office on February um twentieth of 2020. So you or and so you can kind of understand that like a month later I shut down for about a month or so. Um, and yeah, COVID year was very interesting, but I think because I had just started the practice, I was still building my patient base. So it was kind of like maybe similar to what it would have been non COVID. Um, and the, and thankfully, I mean, I'm really blessed. Like everything turned out really well. Um, I made a profit the first year, which I think was, you know, something that I didn't expect to do. Um, and, wow. you know, things have just been continuing to get better and better, especially now that people feel more comfortable coming, um, coming out and, and doing things, uh, again. And so, yeah, yeah, it was a very weird year as, as you know, as a business owner to run a business and, um, potentially we could have had some more growth if we hadn't have had the pandemic, but we did. And I just tried to navigate it as much as possible. my overhead really lean.
0: (laughs) Yes. Very optimistic. That's, that's, that was a great way of thinking. So your practice is a little bit unique, right? Many, many people that are out there who are listening to this are in a primary care practice, but that's not what you did. You started off and said, Hey, we're going to really, uh, we're going to really align in specialty contact lenses. When did you make that decision that you wanted to go into practice and have a specialty contact lens practice?
1: Yeah, so that was basically my plan since I was in high school. Um, So it's been a long time coming. Um, As I said, I had a lot of problems with my eyes. And so the only lenses that I can wear successfully are sclerals. And I'm
2: joined with Dr. Carrie Geed on engineering your dream practice from the ground up. In particular, for um, practitioners that are that are maybe interested in going into um, practice ownership, may have some concerns. I think you brought up a few kind of really really interesting things. One, right off the get-go, you're partnering with somebody, so you're sharing a lot of that risk. But you also are both very aligned. Um, you're both sharing what what sounds like to be a full-time. Um, practice or practitioners schedule so you're both saying i'm going to vote devote two and a half days a week to patient care and then some other percentage of time towards admin like did you guys just divvy that up and say well hey i like doing this i enjoy doing this or did you guys really kind of split that up 50 50 and say hey let's work on the marketing together hey let's work on hr together like how did you guys divvy that up initially
3: yeah i think it was a combination of things i think you know you realize certain strengths and things you, you have an affinity for, or a, a, you know, a knack for that you might not have even been able to divvy up on paper before you, you did it. I mean, I think especially in, you know, you and I, when we went to school, there was some practice management training, but, but, you know, nothing really prepares you for being a business owner and an HR manager and, you know, sometimes a plumber and a janitor and, and everything else that goes into that. <laughs> um, so, you know, we did things that, that, um, you know, I think on the financial side allows for some checks and balances. You know, I paid the bills when she'd reconcile the checkbook or, um, you know, just different things like that, yeah. where we both were able to keep a pulse on the business and, and not that there were ever any trust issues. Cause we really have not had any of that, but it, it, it just allowed us to to kind of check each other in a positive way, um, to, to make sure nothing was, was, uh, you know, getting out of, out of line about or out of turn, um, to this day, you know, uh, one of us does payroll, one of us does, you know, other things. And, and we definitely divide and conquer not to duplicate efforts, you know, 20 years together, it it really is a marriage and, and, uh, you know, you have your good days and your bad days and, and the days that you just, you know, it all goes smoothly and the days it doesn't. And, and, uh, you know, you just keep in mind that you're all after the same goal. You're all-
0: Today, we're with Dr. Kelly Kirksik, and we're going to be talking about where we've come with the EHR, where we're going with the EHR, and how you can hate your electronic health records less. What, uh, what, what do you see is, uh, is better? So give me two or three things that are about better about electronic health records than paper.
4: So I'll give you the spiel that I give all of our new customers, and it's funny. The first time I did this with um, with a, a new employee, a new coworker, I, I thought they were going to have a heart attack because, you know, I I always say I am I will not blow smoke, and I'm not going to say things that that aren't true or or tell people what they want to hear. And Typically my first conversation with a doctor after they've invested thousands of dollars in a new um, EHR and typically all of the infrastructure that goes with it, you need computers. You're, most of the time people upgrade other pieces of equipment and whatnot. And I'll say, congratulations, you have now, you know transitioned to the electronic health record world. Did you know that you are going to be embarking on a journey that is going to slow you down, drive you crazy, make you want to pull your hair out and question on a daily basis why am I doing this. And usually you can hear a pin fall, you know a pin good, drop. Good and... sale. Good job. <laughs> but I'm, I'm said set, I'm setting this stage just for realistic expectations are so important. And the truth is, you know, I all kidding aside, there's an element of truth to that that an electronic health record will slow you down. And I will tell a doctor that, that if you're going to make a comparison between doing an eye exam on a piece of paper versus doing an eye exam um, in, within an EHR system, there's no question. I'm not going to bet against you to say uh, that that a computer's faster. Um, but
0: Today we're joined by Ilsa Homan from iLeet. And we're going to be speaking about utilizing an iPad, to help improve your binocular vision and myopia practice. What, uh, and, and I would like for us to talk a little bit about Ailee here in a moment, but uh, yeah. what, um, what, uh, what do you foresee this uh, becoming here in practices? Is this something where you started utilizing it in, in practice so far, or is it something where people are starting to use in practice already? And how's that going?
5: So, the interesting and sad thing is um the pilot I definitely started running in my own practice sure um I loved what it did for me because it made me more efficient. It made me be able to work smarter and faster and and let's face it, the moment you work with an app, kids just think they're playing a computer game as opposed to being being tested, so the children and the parents loved it um. It was only really finished by the time that I sold my practices, okay. and um, we're in a stage where we officially launched in March. We mm-hmm. had a small pilot study with a couple of colleagues that I that I that I, you know, trusted and and could talk about and could give me some some honest feedback. And um, yeah, we're at a place now where we've we've got people signed in from America all the way to Malaysia.
0: Yeah. So, so let's know, talk a little bit about ones. ILEE. And uh, wow. first of all, what does it do? Um, so yeah. there's, there's two different types that we can use. We can use the diagnostic and then there's an aspect with some treatment for vision therapy. Tell us, well, first of all, how do you describe ILEE to people who've never heard of it?
5: So ILEE is a way to be able to do more tests in a shorter period of time.
0: Today we're joined by Dr. Brianna Rue, and we're going to be talking about doctor contact lens. When when we start talking about technology, there's practices that are out there that are incorporating technology, and they uh, they're just spending all sorts of money. And you know, the run of the mill optometrists, like you and I both are, we do primary care. Um, how How is it that technology brings about a return on investment, right? You, you already moved into a practice, but is it the sort of thing where you're buying an OCT and it just makes you feel better about your practice? Or is there a return on investment in all of this technology? And how do you go about that now that you're not just an associate, but that you've been a business owner for six, seven years?
6: Yeah, it's <laughs> interesting. I always love the private practice side of things and actually the business side. So a lot of us are either scared of that site or don't dive into it. And when we're evaluating things, we only see this big price tag up front. So it's important that when you're looking either a piece of equipment or a subscription service like my own, um, it's important to evaluate that ROI and see what that's going to bring you. And ask yourself when you're ev- evaluating technology, whether it's equipment or something like an online scheduler or a contact lens ordering store, to really look at what it's not what it's costing you today but what it will cost you if you don't do it. So simple ROI, you've got a thousand contact lens patients in your practice and we're all letting $200,000 leak out of our door. So it's just getting more savvy with understanding our patient data and what that patient data is valued to us and using it. So that's how we have to move forward or else Mm -hmm. we will get left behind.
2: I'm joined by Dr. Cecilia Ketting and we're gonna be talking about not getting crossed. Thanks. Well, that's that's where I think it's all changed because I, I remember like even when I was in school, we learned about keratoconic patients, how to refractively correct them as best as possible, whether that entailed glasses, soft or rigid gas permeable lenses. And then we would talk about essentially waiting and if they got bad enough, they require a corneal transplant. But this is a totally different mindset. This is a totally different shift. Describe to to the viewers um, why it's so important to catch these patients early on to help prevent.
7: So describing um, to you all, it's so important to, to identify these early. And you're absolutely right. It was a, you know, I'm sorry you have keratoconus. We're going to make you see okay or the best we can until you potentially need a transplant. And the problem with transplants is that, you know, they have, they have a life. They aren't going to live forever. They're gonna work forever. Typically the average uh, corneal transplant, that's not a hard and fast role, but it's about 20 years. And then they need to have it done. Our keratoconic patients are starting with problems in the early, um, late teens, early twenties. And so we're talking about somebody who's in the early decades of their life. And we know are going to live longer than 20 years Therefore, they're going to have to have repeat transplants, which can be costly. It is difficult for them. It is a very uh, in time-consuming involved thing, um, just not only for the surgery itself, but also for the care and the maintenance on the patient side for the rest of their life. Yeah. It also means issues with even just optical clarity with the corneal transplant, even though most of the times it is better than their previous keratoconic eye. Now, if we can identify these patients earlier and get them treated earlier, this can make a huge difference in
0: somebody's life. Today, we're joined by Dr. Tanya Gill from We Love Eyes. What what were some of the things that I would not even imagine about? I mean, I'm sure you have to find somebody that can make it for you, sourcing the product and packaging and all. I mean, packaging is probably the easy part, right? But so walk us through some of those weird things that, you didn't even have to think
8: oh you have a bottle right you think this is easy so you know the olympics just happened so you're running this formula inside here through Mm -hmm. like the modern day pentathlon so you need to have it tested for preservative if you want to make a claim gluten free has to be tested for something specific called ocular irritation because it's used around the eye area Has to be tested for allergy response, dermatology tested if you should. It needs to be tested. (laughs) It could go on and on so that the formula is stable in the bottle when it's on the shelf, has to be tested. What is the shelf life? Mm
5: -hmm. And that cute
8: little symbol, it's called POA product, um, oh, PAO product after opening you have to get that tested. So we're just talking, it goes through the pentathlon of testing. And at any point you have a fail, you start all over.
0: <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, I just, so once yeah. you get that, all of that stuff done, then you can't change the concentration at all. You can't add or subtract. You have to use the same supplier and all of that stuff from then on forward.
8: Nothing can change. So yeah. that formula has been tested to made it to be made at a very specific FDA manufacturing lab. We mm-hmm. have ours made at the Estee Lauder um, L'Oreal manufacturing lab, so it's up to the highest standards.
9: Mm-hmm.
8: But there, you'll see a lot of products out on the market. This drives me crazy none of their products have been safety tested. Mm. Just can't Mm -hmm. do that, right? A lot of people are like, oh, there's no water in my formula, so I don't need to get it preservative tested. Actually, you probably should.
0: Today, we're joined by Dr. Lindsay Bull, and we're gonna be talking about lasers and eye care and advanced optometric procedures. We, you know, each state's a little bit different. We've now got several states with laser privileges. What are the things that you do on a a weekly or a monthly basis that many of us don't do or can't do.
10: So every other Friday, um, I have a PRK schedule where I am in our refractive surgery suite and I am the one performing PRK. So that's done twice monthly. And then on the opposite Wednesdays, I'm over at our surgery center doing Yags, PIs, SLTs. We have a laser over there at our surgery center. Um, And so there are at least four days a month where I have specific clinic times set aside just to do all of my laser procedures. Um, Now, we do have lasers in-house in our regular office too. And so if somebody emergently needs a PI or something done, I can do those really any day of the week that I'm in clinic as well. But we do like to have each doctor have kind of like a set clinic schedule. It just makes the patient flow a lot easier. I know that when I'm in at the surgery center doing like my Yags and my SLTs and PIs, Um, I'll have anywhere from 20 to 30 patients probably scheduled in a couple hour block there. And I just sit down at the laser chair and my nurses bring the patients in and take them out and bring the patients in and take them out. And so it makes it a really, really easy process for the patient. Um, I tell my patients, you know, I expect you to be in our office for under an hour to get this done. And most of that time is going to be just to dilate your eye or just to put pilocarpine in and and get the eye prepared for actually having the laser procedure. But the easier that we can make the process for the patient, the happier they are. So having those nice surgery laser schedule blocks has been really nice
0: for our patients. Today, we're joined by Dr. Lindsay six. And we're going to be talking about finder and how you can use them to make both yourself and the people that you work with better. They, they, they were just so revealing to us um, in our team and understanding who we are and what was important. The question I kind of have for you is how could we as young practitioners, as many of the people who are listening, or as future business owners or current business owners, utilize this to better ourselves and better our teams now that you're on the coaching side how do you see that working out in an optometry space
11: yeah well first of all thanks for saying that i'm still young i really appreciate that i (laughs) feel
0: that (laughs) way sometimes
11: but um but yeah so um from a personal standpoint i think it's just really helpful to know what drives you, right? And and for you, even with the futuristic, like I could, I know you, Dave, I could say that was probably one of your top five. But for you, knowing that it's your number one thing that drives you, other people might look at you and say, oh, Dave, Dave just likes, he has his head up in the clouds. He's just always thinking about stuff. Right. But then you combine that with your activator and you're able to take those ideas and start things. Right. But then, like you said, you need to surround yourself with people that can help you finish them and kind of get across the finish line with all your lofty goals. So just knowing that about yourself is how you're able to get all of these things done that you do. Right. And how every day for the last 10 years, you've just like added more and more to your plate. (laughs) And here we are. So um, I think if you can know that about yourself and also understand. So there's like these, we call them balconies and basements. So the, and there's also an element of like raw strengths versus like things that are more um, developed. So in its raw state, futuristic can be, you know, seen as, Not getting anything done, you're like wasting time, right? But if you're able to hone that into something that is a true strength, you're able to deliver that kind of near perfect performance and use that futuristic to your advantage, which you clearly
10: do.
0: Today we're joined by Dr. Marsha Maluli. She is from Chicago Cornea and she's going to be talking to us about multifocal IOLs and how patients are glad they had cataracts so they could finally get good vision. So I, I don't do cataract surgery, obviously in my office, we, we don't have an ophthalmologist at our practice. And so we refer all of our patients out and, you know, working with different surgeons, uh, that are friends and, and optometrists like yourself around the country. I, uh, I always want to know, like, what is it that I can do better in my practice to help serve my patients? surgical patients before they come in and see you? Like what are the things that you always want to help that clinician do better for their patients before they end up seeing you in your practice, particularly for let's say cataract surgery?
8: So this is a great question. I think that optometrists are uniquely uh, in a unique situation um, to really educate our patients. We know their visual systems best. So we are in a unique position to make recommendations when we're sending them for cataract surgery in terms of what type of implant would be best, how to leave them refractively after surgery, whether it be a multifocal IOL or um, monovision or leaving them nearsighted. Maybe we want to talk to them about a toric implant to correct their astigmatism. So I think that we really can help guide our patients and then also the referring surgeons on how what we think would give the best outcome to our patients.
2: And we're going to be talking to Dr. Laura Perryman today on reevaluating the review, but it is becoming increasingly difficult to get through the mounds of peer review data that's actually out there right now. And you know, you attempt to stay as contemporary as you possibly can to give your patients the best clinical outcomes possible. But it is becoming increasingly difficult when you look at the number of publications that we have today compared to this same area of eye care 20 years ago. It's just it just totally exploded. So tell us, give us the secret, Laura. I and mean, you seem to always be on top of the the cutting edge technology on what's coming out, what's new. How, how does that happen? How do you do that?
9: How does that happen? Well, it's uh, I have an insatiable curiosity like I love understanding how things work and i stick with the problem until i've got it figured out my two current projects are the ins and outs of vitamin a metabolism and Mm -hmm. you know vitamin a itself cis retinols trans retinols and why some are good and some are bad and its effects on the ocular surface and then the other thing i'm working on is this neural inflammation story so interesting based off of the trp transient receptor potential um, it's a super family of receptors and it's conserved across basically life on planet earth. Even, even nematodes have little sensors in their little noses as they burrow through there. So they can avoid noxious stimuli. So I just think that stuff is really fun and it has great relevance for what we do as ocular surface disease experts, but also a peer into what's coming down the pipeline. And there's some really cool stuff coming to directly address the TRP uh, superfamily neuroinflammatory picture of the ocular surface.
0: Today we're joined by Chelsea Bradley, and we're going to be speaking about the dirty side of contact lens solution. What what uh, what are some of these major preservatives, and yeah. uh, and how do they how do they differ, or why would you switch from one to another? How does that work clinically?
12: Sure. So the two major ones that are in all the solutions right now are polyquaternium one, which goes by PQ one usually, and then PHMB, which encompasses quite a few um, similar compounds that are all under that umbrella. And those are the ones found in the you know Optifree, BioTrue. A lot of the common ones used today, and uh, I find clinically with my students and when I was in school, someone's having an adverse reaction to a solution, and they know that those are the most common ones used or the ones they've heard the name the most, if anything. So they're saying, kid, their Optifree is not working well. Let's switch them to BioTrue but they're not going to realize maybe that BioTrue has the same preservatives in it that Optifree does sometimes. So clinically, it's important to make sure you're not switching your patient to something that's not even going to help the problem.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you switch from... You know, say the patient has a PHMB and you switch from one PHMB to another PHMB, you're not really doing anything. So there are obviously are some advantages to multi-purpose solutions. You don't have to have the the six-hour disinfectant uh, that you would have with the peroxide for it to to kind of calm down. You know, if a a a patient drops their contact lens, you can pick it up and kind of rinse it off. It's kind of one of those benefits. So there certainly are advantages to multipurpose solutions. So knowing where, where, where they fit is still an important thing. Um, what, what about uh, generic solutions? Did you dig into the generic world of solutions at all?
12: You know, I really didn't. And we, you know, Lindsay and Andrew and I discussed it and we decided not to because clinically we rarely recommend patients go in generic if they've already done it on their own. We can consider if they're doing okay letting them leave it, but we just didn't feel mm-hmm. it was best practices. Uh-huh.